And good morning, everybody. Today we're in Genesis chapter 14, and uh, as we've uh, seen, uh, this passage is in the context of a war. As I've been preparing for the message this morning, looking at the events happening on the Russia and Ukraine border over the past couple of weeks, I can't help but feel that this passage is a very timely reminder that the threat of war is a very real thing in our world. I must admit that I've really struggled with this passage. As I've watched Europe getting closer and closer to war and seeing with bated breath this sermon getting closer, trying to preempt what our world would look like today, I, I must admit I've been pretty nervous about this passage. And yet, as I've been preparing for the sermon, really digging into Scripture, it's as if the Holy Spirit just reminded me and said, uh, something infinitely more real, something more infinitely more important than the build-up of troops on the borders of Europe. And that's, as Christians, we don't wrestle against the flesh and blood of this world, against the wars that are fought between sinful mankind. Now, our fight is a spiritual one against the spiritual principalities that exist in this present darkness. And so today's passage is going to help us understand how we should act in times like this. That during the geopolitical context of war, how do we as Christians prepare ourselves for the spiritual battles that are coming our way? And there's four things we're going to see today. First of all, we're going to see that there will always be a battle when we live behind enemy lines. Second thing we're going to see is that as Christians, we should be ready for spiritual war. And third, we're going to see how we must always choose the right path. And then lastly, we're going to see the power of prayer, the power of prayer. And with that being said, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that scripture teaches us things about the world that we live in. And as this morning, we live in a very, very broken world. Lord, I just thank you that this morning we are safe in this spiritual house, in this house of prayer, in this house where we can gather around your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may be able to discern your word and that you would open our hearts to receive your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 13 last week, we saw Abram and Lot separate. Both men had accumulated so much wealth in the form of animals and people that they could no longer live amongst each other. We saw Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen fight one another. And as such, Abram, he took the higher ground and diffused the situation by saying, look, choose whatever land you want to live in. If you live in the, in the east, I'll go to the west. If you live in the west, I'll go to the east. And we saw Lot chose to dwell in the Jordan Valley. Lot saw that the valley was well watered and he knew that he would prosper there. 
And so we left Lot in chapter 13 where he ended up pitching his tent outside the city of Sodom, the sinful city of Sodom. Meanwhile, Abram moved in the opposite direction. He moved um, and settled by the oaks of Mamre. And today we're going to pick up the narrative in Genesis chapter 14, where Lot, who's now caught inside the city of Sodom, he gets caught up in a war. Four kings from another land are coming in from the north to invade the lands of Canaan. And verse 1 tells us who these attacking kings are. The attacking kings are Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Kedalaimah, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. Now the four attacking kings have travelled from the plains of Shinar and they're entering the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, from the north. And they've come to wage war with five defending kings from the land of Canaan. And we read who these five defending kings are in verse 2. It says that we have Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinar, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these, the defending kings, joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So here what we're seeing is that in response to the attacking kings, the defending kings have now chosen to set the defensive lines near the Salt Sea, which is the modern-day Dead Sea. You might be wondering, well, why are these four attacking kings coming into this land, and why why are the five attacking kings coming to meet them and are preparing for war? And verse 4 tells us why. It says, For twelve years they, the five defending kings, had served Kedalaimah, one of the attacking kings. But in the thirteenth year, they, the defending kings, had rebelled. So now we can pause here and and find out what's going on. For twelve years, the defending kings had served Kedalaimah. And now in the thirteenth year, they've decided they don't want to serve Kedalaimah anymore. So they rebel and they form a defensive alliance, ready for the consequences. Now, this information really helps us set the stage for what's going on and and for us to understand the geopolitical landscape of the time. Because kings and their kingdoms during this time were very different to how kings and their kingdoms are now. In these times, kings ruled over cities rather than swathes of land and countries like we see today. And so, as such, lots of kings were grouped together in a relatively small area, which meant that there would often be conflict between the kings. And if a king served another king, it was likely because he'd lost a battle against him. So it's safe to assume that the five defending kings here had in the past lost a battle or a war against Kedalaimah, one of the attacking kings. And the job of Kedalaimah was to enforce his power by ensuring that those who served him, the five kings, would continue to pay the taxes that were due to him. So the five defending kings have said to each other, I've had enough of this, we don't want to serve Kedalaimah anymore. And they're readying themselves by setting a defensive line at the Dead Sea. And they must fancy their chances here. It's five defending kings against four attacking kings, and that's, that's pretty good odds. Especially if you're defending, you're in your own land, You don't have to travel anywhere. The impetus really is on the attacking force to get the job done efficiently and quickly so as to not waste any time or any more resources in trying to re-establish their economic superiority. 
However, what we're going to see in the next few verses, chapter, uh, verses 5 to 7, is just how powerful the four attacking kings were. And uh, instead of going through the text, um, I've, I've put some slides based on the text. So verses 5 to 7 explain how the troops of the four attacking kings first defeated the Rephaim here at Ashtaroth. They then moved down to Zuzim. They then defeated the Emim at Kiriathayim. They then defeat the Horites and chase them all the way down to El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. They then do a U-turn and come all the way back up and defeat the Amalekites. They then come and defeat the Amorites. And then they come and meet the five defending kings in the valley of Sidim. That's a pretty comprehensive battle plan there. So they've well and truly mopped up the, uh, the surrounding kings. And then we come to verse 10. Verse 10 says, Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Now we're not told the exact details of the battle or how the four kings came to beat the five defending kings, but we are told that in a panic, the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah have fled, and they've got caught in the bitumen pits. Now, bitumen pits are bubbling tar pits that contain a tar-like substance which was used for building projects during the time. We saw in Genesis chapter 11 how the bitumen tar was used as mortar for the um, construction of the Tower of Babel. Also, um, around the Dead Sea, um, there, were, there were hundreds of these bitumen pits. And Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, talks about how even the Romans were still using these bitumen pits in their building projects. What I think is happening here is that the five defending kings have decided to use these pits as defensive traps. But in their lack of military skill and in their fright of this pretty scary four-king alliance, they've ended up falling into their own traps. And so far, verses 1 to 10 have really, all they've given us is a war report. But this is the first time in scripture that we read of battles like this. And this won't be the last time that we read about battles in the Old Testament especially. It's often recounting wars between tribes and kings and countries because it's part of the human condition for wars to happen. And yet we often see how Bible characters react during these times of war. Sometimes they act honorably Sometimes they act deceitfully. Sometimes they trust in God. Sometimes they don't trust in God. Here we're going to see how Abraham, Abram, Abraham, excuse me if I call him Abraham. Here we're going to see how Abram acts as his nephew Lot gets caught up and is taken away as a prisoner of war. And whilst these war reports haven't been written to us, they are written for us so that we can understand God's wisdom, because in God's wisdom, God has included these historic battles so that we can learn from them and apply them to our lives. And how appropriate is it that whilst Europe is on the cusp of war, this morning we can turn to Scripture and look at how we should respond in potential times of war? Because we must be will. Even if a war doesn't happen, and I truly pray it doesn't, 
we should always be readying ourselves to fight spiritual battles. Because the enemy, Satan, will use whatever's happening during the world around us to try and bring as much chaos as he can. So we can expect to engage in a war of some kind. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. Lot wasn't prepared for this war. For some reason unknown to us, he's now living in the city of Sodom. Now, I get sometimes how we view Lot. Sometimes we view him as the anti-Abram, or the person always does this opposite to what Abram does. And we certainly saw that in last week's chapter, didn't we, in chapter 13, where Abram clearly made choices based on faith. It seems that Lot is always a man who lives by sight. He sees a luscious valley, so he moves to the luscious valley. He sees a city, so he moves to the city, even if it is a wicked and sinful one. However, we, really, we need to bear something in mind. Despite Lot's obvious failings in Scripture, Lot's always considered to be a righteous man. The Apostle Peter confirms this in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. He says, Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived amongst them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and that he heard. I don't know if you knew that, um, and I mean, who would have known that? Lot was a righteous man, but you wouldn't think from his actions. He's living in a city that's sinful and wicked and is on the cusp of war. And Peter tells us that Lot was concerned. He was considered a righteous man. And this revelation has brought me on to my first application point for today. that there's always a battle behind enemy lines. Peter says that the sensual conduct of Sodom tormented Lot's righteous soul. That sounds like a spiritual battle to me. Lot was tormented over Sodom's lawless deeds from what he saw and from what he heard. And yet as a righteous man, he chose to live amongst those sinful people day by day. Lot's soul was tormented. It seems that part of him wanted to escape the sins that he saw and heard, and yet part of him wanted to stay. Who can relate to Lot here? I wonder, as righteous Christians, how many times have we lived in situations where we're tormented, our souls are tormented over the sins that we see and we hear, and yet for some reason we just can't escape? How many of us are like Lot, are fighting a spiritual battle? How many of us, like Lot, have edged closer to a place where we become greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of this world. Of course, we all know how hard it is nowadays to escape the sinful world that we live in. Just turn on your phone, browse the internet, watch TV, watch the news, walk through town. Do our souls not torment over the lawless deeds of this world? And yet... Is there something in this world where we live in that's drawing us in, keeping us in bondage to it? You see, Lot didn't have to live in Sodom. 
Something that was appealing to his flesh was keeping him there. Something was causing him to ignore the fact that four massive armies were coming his way. What was keeping him there in Sodom? Was it the promise of wealth? Was he too comfortable in the city? Was he too scared to move? We don't know the exact reason as to why Lot remained in Sodom. But we do know that before the four kings had even turned up, Lot had already lost a battle. Before Lot was even taken captive by Kedileamah, he was already captive to the world that he lived in. Lot's refusal to move away from the sins that tormented his soul have now caused him to become in mortal danger. Everything he owns, everything he wanted to hold on to, his possessions, his family, his wealth, everything is now taken captive and he's on a path to destruction. What a lesson for us all today. Remember, Lot is counted as righteous. Surely this begs the question, if this can happen to Lot, could this happen to us? If Lot was able to allow the desires of his flesh to keep him spiritually captive to this world, could this happen to us? If Lot was so spiritually blinded that he wasn't able to recognise the danger of four armies coming his way after they've just comprehensively mopped up the whole land... Could there be things in our life that we don't recognise because we're in bondage to sin? I wonder how many of us are being dragged away by life's circumstances right now because we refuse to give up the sinful desires of our flesh. Of course, that's the illustration for Lot. He was a righteous man. What about the sinful people of Sodom? Those who weren't counted as righteous. They weren't ready at all, were they? They had no idea where their sins would lead them. I won't spoil what's coming up in our sermon series. Um, I believe that's Owen's job. But let me tell you this. (laughs) If you're not considered a righteous person, and if you're caught behind enemy lines when it's too late, after God has given you ample opportunity to repent, to be baptised, and to become a righteous child of God, then there's nothing that will save you from the fire that's coming your way. Nothing except Jesus. Only in Jesus will you find a saviour who will save you from your sins. Only in Jesus will you be made righteous and understand the mortal danger that you're in. Jesus says in the Gospels that he's not here to save those who are righteous. He's already saved them. But he says that he's come to save those who are sick. Those who are well, who have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was never taken captive by the sins of this world. That's why he came to save the sick. So you can trust in Jesus. If you don't know him, you can trust him to come and save you. Because only in Jesus will you find rescue from the fire that's coming your way. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and of Anah. And these were allies of, of Abram. We'll just go back a second. Here on the map, this orange, uh, this orange section here is where they believe Sodom was. Of course, 
We don't know for sure where Sodom was because it was destroyed. But somebody was able to escape the ransacking of Sodom and was able to tell Abram, who lived here, at the Oaks of Mamre. Now, I want you to notice how Abram's introduced in, um, in verse 13. He's introduced as Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram is head of his own people group, the Hebrews, and he has allies. And like Lot, un- unlike Lot, Abram is now aware of the world that he lives in, and he realises the need for allies to back him up if ever he gets into trouble. Verse 14 says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen Um, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. What a victory for Abram. With just 318 people, Abram was able to pursue, rescue, and bring back not just Lot and Lot's possessions, but he brings back the captives of the entire city of Sodom too. And notice how he does it. He's shrewd. He uses guerrilla tactics to split his men up and pursue them as far as Dan, and then he defeats the enemy by attacking them at night. I'm sure this was no small feat, especially against the well-trained battle-hardened men who had previously decimated the whole of Canaan. They just, these four kings have defeated a whole host of well-trained kings and armies, and yet Abram was able to rescue Lot with just 318 men. Of course, we're going to see in a few verses down in uh, verse 20, how it was actually God who delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. And if we really think about that for a second... This tells us a few interesting things. First of all, of course, it shows us Lot's faithfulness and his love towards his kinsman Lot, Abram's faithfulness towards his kinsman Lot. But it also shows that God loved Lot, and it was God who actually saved Lot via Abram. It also shows that God didn't want the people of Sodom to be captured at this point either. Which brings me on to our second point, that as Christians, we should always be ready for spiritual war. We should always be ready for spiritual war. God wants us to fight for his kingdom. And notice, he wants us to fight for those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. It's clear from our passage so far that both the righteous and the unrighteous come under attack. And whilst Jesus has won the war, against sin and death, it's now our job as Christians to go out and win battles for his glory. Like God did with Abram, God will enable us to win these battles in his strength. When we see our brothers and sisters in Christ become like Lot and get captured by the sins of this world, we must be prepared to fight for them. But we can only do so if we're like Abram, if we're armed and ready for battle. But how? How do we arm ourselves for such spiritual battles and spiritual attacks on our kinsmen? Well, the Bible says that we must arm ourselves with the whole armour of God. And I'd just like to turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. 
you'd like to turn there with me, feel free to do so. This passage is wonderful encouragement for anybody who's facing spiritual battles at the moment. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can distinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That last verse says that we must pray at all times in spirit, with all power and supplication. For who? For all the saints. For the brothers and sisters who are sat next to you. For your loved ones. We arm ourselves to fight against the cosmic powers that are actively trying to destroy us right now. We pray for one another in the spirit. And when we do so, we become an unbreakable force that recognizes that when one of us gets captured, when one of us is led astray, we are able to prepare ourselves to fight for that person. Because believe me, spiritual battles are coming. And bit by bit, the enemy is going to try and drag our loved ones away. Do you want to see the enemy pick off one by one the best that LBC has to offer? We must stand firm. We must put on the whole armour of God. We must pray for one another. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedileama and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, son of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons to take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Abram's just finished his rescue operation. He's made his way back and he's tired from battle. And two kings have come out to meet him in the, in the king's valley. We have King Sodom and the king of Salem. Now each king represents a very different path. And it's a path that as Christians we must consider in the spiritual battles we engage in. And this brings me on to our next point. We must choose the right path. 
The king of Sodom offers Abram an excellent proposition. He says, you can have all the possessions, all the loot that you want to bring back from the rescue mission, that's yours, as was Abram's right. But let me take the people of Sodom. And just think about that for a second. Abram's been given the wealth of the whole city of Sodom, and it could now belong to Abram. How tempting of an offer must that have been for Abram? All that money, all the animals, all the resources, and yet Abram wanted nothing to do with it because he knew exactly where the worldly gifts came from. They came from the city of Sodom. Abram's learned from past experience in Egypt, and he's just seen Lot make the same fatal mistake, that if you trade godly principles for worldly gifts, things will not end up going your way. You know, it's ironic, the king of Sodom's name, Bera, in Hebrew means gift. And the, and the kingdom he reigns over is Sodom, which in Hebrew means burning. Abram literally knew that if he accepted the gifts of Sodom, he would end up getting burnt. And he's right. What does he say? He says, I have lifted my hand to the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram wanted the glory of this battle to go to God. He wasn't going to give up his godly principles in doing so. So what path does Abram take? He takes the path of Melchizedek. And instead of offering worldly gifts, Melchizedek offers Abram refreshment. He brings out a meal of bread and wine, and then he blesses them in this wonderful ceremony of worship. He says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Here, Melchizedek, he's acting as a mediator between God and Abram, as priest of God, the, most ho- of the priest of God most high. In the Old Testament, this is exactly what priests did. It was their job to lead worship ceremonies like this one, and it was their job to help men and women approach God so that they could, be, so that they could receive forgiveness of sins. Now, it's here that we need to stop and just learn a few things before we continue. Because this man, Melchizedek, is a little bit of an, an, an that word, can you say that word? Anomaly, anomaly. Me and my wife always joke, I can never say that word. And I chose to put it in a sermon. <laughs> Melchizedek literally pops out of nowhere, which is strange for Genesis, which is a book about genealogies. And you know, it's strange that Melchizedek is described as a priest. We know God hasn't yet established His law. He hasn't created the need for priests yet. It's not until Abram's great-great-great-great-grandson Aaron that we'll end up seeing the first priest of Israel. And yet this priest king, Melchizedek, pops out of nowhere. He blesses Abram, and all of a sudden, Abram's tithing to him. Now, if you don't understand what's going on here, then we're in danger of losing track of what this passage is all about, because this is the most important part. Because this is the part of the passage which is leading us down a really, really important path in the Bible. If we don't follow this path this morning, as our application point says, then I'm afraid these truths about spiritual warfare will exist only here in the pages of the Bible. Which is great, but I want it to sink here into our our hearts. 
I want us to be Christians that can change the world that we live in and be effective when God decides to save us. So who is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek's name can be split into two words. Melech, which in Hebrew means king, and Zedek in Hebrew, which means righteousness. So Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem being the Hebrew, the root, Hebrew root word for the word shalom, which means peace. So not only is Melchizedek the king of righteousness, but his kingdom is the kingdom of peace. And interestingly, the kingdom of Salem is thought to be the city which will end up becoming Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is God's chosen holy city. And we see that um, confirmed in Psalm 76 and verse 2. It says, his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. And I want us to put this information together because when you put all these elements of Melchizedek together, he's starting to sound like somebody else. He's the king of righteousness, whose kingdom is the kingdom of peace. He's a priest and a king. He refreshes Abram with bread and wine. Melchizedek starts to sound like somebody else who we know and love. He starts to sound quite a lot like Jesus. Now, some people think Melchizedek is a theophany or a Christophany. Theophany being a word that comes from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and the Greek verb meaning to appear, an appearance of God. Some people think that he's either a Christophany, which is the same, an appearance of Christ. However, I don't think that Melchizedek is either of these. If he were, it would mean that Jesus had literally ruled on earth as an actual priest and king for a period of time, and scripture doesn't support that. No. <clears throat> Melchizedek is recorded here as a man who prefigures Christ, the Messiah. Melchizedek is a model or a pattern for the Messiah to come. And David picks this up in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, and it's, it's the... Uh, it's a psalm, it's a prophecy from David as to who the Messiah will be. The first four verses, the first three verses, the first stanza of the psalm talks about how the Messiah will be a king. And then this uh, verses four to seven, the second stanza says how the Messiah will be a priest. And verse four says that the Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And it's interesting, isn't it? Suddenly, this Melchizedek character that we've seen here in Genesis chapter 14 is leading us to who the Messiah will be. It's leading us down a pathway to Jesus. Now, interestingly, this Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110, is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it's used by Jesus himself on multiple occasions to affirm himself as the Messiah. Not only this, but the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 dedicates a whole chapter detailing why Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he picks up the same patterns that we have. Melchizedek's name, he's the king of righteousness. Melchizedek's kingdom is the kingdom of peace. He picks up the fact that Melchizedek pops out of nowhere. It says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3, he, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. 
There's a lot to take in there. And there's a whole host of things the author of Hebrews recognises. And believe me, I'll be touching on these points in our house group questions this week. I fear there's so much to talk about here that I just don't have the time to go into it fully. But the take-home is this. Melchizedek is a model or a pattern for who the Messiah will be. And of course we know that Jesus is the fulfilment of this passage as he is the ultimate king and he is the ultimate priest. And so knowing this in a roundabout way, this passage opens up for our last application point for today. And that is the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Jesus is both our ultimate king and our ultimate priest, which means that as sons and daughters, heirs according to promise, we've been given access to the most powerful spiritual weapon at our disposal. We've been given the power of prayer. See, through Jesus' death on the cross, when he ascended to heaven and took his place at the right hand of God, Jesus came into the holy presence of God the Father. And at that moment, the curtain which had separated God from man was torn in two. And the priesthood on earth was destroyed. Because of this, all earthly priesthoods were replaced by our ultimate priest, who is King Jesus, King and Priest Jesus. And because of this, when we pray to Jesus, we go straight to the throne of God and our prayers are presented to him as a holy offering to God. All our prayers and supplications and intercessions that we've been doing this morning, all of these go straight to King and Priest Jesus, which for us Christians is a total game changer. It means that when we're attacked as Christians, when this sinful world that we live in is on the precipice of war, we are fully equipped to engage in spiritual warfare through our prayers, because we have direct access to the throne of God. We don't need a priest to intercede for us. We don't need to pray to saints. We don't worship through icons. We have the wonderful privilege and honour to go straight to the throne of God and we pray to the one who intercedes for us on our behalf. So when we pray against the powers and principalities on earth, We pray as our Father instructed us to in the Lord's Prayer. We pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. What we're doing is we're praying and we're bringing heaven to earth. So right now, as this morning, as we've prayed peace on earth, as we've prayed oneness in Christ, as we've interceded, as we've mediated, as we've thought of people in our minds who we're going to go and save, we've become priests here on earth. Every one of us in this room is part of a holy priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says this, As you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the power of prayer. He then goes to say on verse 9, but you, he's talking about us Christians here, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Abram, when he connected the dots, when he found his mediator in the form of Melchizedek, Abram offered himself to God, and he did so by praising, by worshipping, and using adoration in the form of a tithe. He gave one-tenth of all he owned as a sacrifice to God. And when we connect the dots, and when we do the same, we can't help it. We can't stop that compulsion to give ourselves wholly and completely to God. We want to win spiritual battles for God. We want to win spiritual battles for God's glory. And we want to worship and give ourselves to him fully and completely. Spurgeon once said, I pray God, if I have a drop of blood in my body which is not his, to let it bleed away. And if there be one hair in my head which is not consecrated to him, I would have it plucked out, for it must be the devil's drop of blood or the devil's hair. It belongs to either one or the other. If not to God, then to Satan. No, we must, brethren, have no divisions of ourselves, no living unto this world and unto God too. What Spurgeon is saying here is we cannot live like Lot, whose soul was tormented, living for this world and living for God too. We give ourselves fully to God. We bring our prayers and we bring our supplications to him. We pray for one another. And we pray for those who are yet to be saved. And as we do this, we become a holy priesthood who brings heaven down to earth. We see this most powerfully in the book of Revelation and in chapter 5 and verse 7. And with this, I'll end. And he, Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and in all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And everybody here in LBC said, Amen. You know, this morning we've brought to God our prayers and our supplications. We've brought to God prayers to save this world, to bring peace upon this world, 
to feed the hungry, to save those who are lost. Right now, I don't think there's any more powerful way for us to bring those prayers and supplications to the Lord by than each of us saying the, the Lord's Prayer so that we could bring heaven here down to earth. So let's, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.